and welcome to Food, Views and Big Ideas. I'm Tonya Barr. And I'm Lucy Allen. And this is the podcast from us here at Straight to the Source. In this podcast, we will be introducing you to the people who are driving our food and hospitality industry forward, whether it be on the land, in the water, in the kitchen, or from the boardroom. Each of our guests are playing a significant role in the evolution of Australia's food identity and culture, and we want you to know who they are, their views, and their big ideas. We're coming to you today from Camaragal land, and we'd like to begin by paying our respects to Elders past, present, and emerging. And we extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people here today. Hi, I'm Tonya, and today I'm talking with John McFadden, well-known executive chef and reigning world seafood champion. John's got an impressive resume, and he's also got a great story to share. Welcome, John. Thank you. Nice to be here. It's great to have you here. You've had such a diverse career in hospitality and food service. Yeah, look, I guess my story started fairly early on in life and, you know, I had an interest in the kitchen from the age of 12 and, you know, I was fortunate enough to get a kitchen hands position sort of back then when, you know, young kids were allowed in the kitchen space and um, that was through my dad and um, that went really well to to the point that um, it was a little local restaurant on the Central Coast, so it was a French fine dining restaurant, owner-operated, um, so I used to go down and just watch the team cook. Was your dad a chef? chef. No, my dad was a sign writer by trade. Okay. Um, he just happened to play golf with the owner of the restaurant and, you know, he knew that I had an interest in cooking and um, and that's how it all really kicked off. And then I was sort of, they asked me to come back as a, you know, to wash, wash dishes, which I did. And then I started making petty fours and all the basics. Um, and then that moved into being on the larder section um, and sort of a year or so later, in the school holidays, I'd get keys to the restaurant, open up for lunch service in the school holidays. And I was working literally five days a week full-time after school. Um, Grades started slipping um, as they would because I was busy cooking. Um, Mum and Dad sort of said if they didn't sort of pick up that I'd have to throw in the job and focus on my studies. Was the motivation the money or was it the desire to learn or was it just the vibe in the kitchen? Yeah, look, I think it was a bit of a combination of both because I was getting paid cash back then and that Mm -hmm. was quite an exciting little proposition as a 13-year-old. So, you know, I started squirreling away my money. I'm like, wow, I'll be a millionaire in no time. so, yeah, and, and it was just the joy of food and I, I think just that adrenaline of service and sort of understanding, you know, sort of sections in the kitchen and moving around. So, yeah, then I had to focus on school and have that balance between school and work. And I left school at the age of 15 in the mid-80s. And the proviso with mum and dad was that if I didn't achieve or get an apprenticeship by the time year 11 started, I had to go back to school. Um Look, here in Sydney or even on the Central Coast, trying to get a job in the mid-80s was challenging. Not many jobs around, and back then people that had jobs held on to jobs and there wasn't much movement um, at all. And, yeah, I secured a job in a Chinese restaurant that sat 500 people and it was a means to a job. I I moved out of school then into sort of TAFE, which was uh, one day a week. So um, I'd work six days a week, sorry, five days a week in the workplace and one day was taped, so technically one day off. And because I was doing French cuisine at TAFE and understanding fundamentals, I was working at Chinese restaurants. So my only day off, I would lesson plan and practice what the lesson plan was at TAFE because it was the only chance I had to put into practice what we're learning. So showing um, that dedication 
was that because you saw it as a career path or you were just wanting you were very competitive and you just wanted to be the best you could be? Yeah, look, it was it was an entry into a workplace. So if it was Chinese cuisine, it was Chinese cuisine. So um, you know, I had my foot in the door into the workplace. I guess one of my biggest fears in life, and it always has been, is that fear of failing. So I would push myself, I would motivate myself. I never failed a single subject at TAFE because it was like if you failed, you had to come back months later to complete the module. So that was sort of my inspiration into sort of pushing myself to make sure that although I wasn't practicing, you know, French cuisine, um, I'd make sure on my day off that I was putting that into practice. Did you ever fail anything at school? No, well, but it was, it was really interesting. The subjects I really excelled at was everything to do with my hands. So I love science because, you know, science experiments, um, cooking, metalwork, woodwork. So all the doing things I was really good at. History, I just didn't have the time of day for it because I just wasn't that patient, I guess. Um, got a different respect for it now. I guess traveling and seeing things for real, it gives you a different appreciation. But, yeah, look, sports for me, I was very good at sports when I was younger. So I guess that coordination piece, high um, hand and eye coordination, I represented school for cricket and rugby league. And um, so, yeah, that was quite interesting. You know, I was, even in rugby league, I played representative rugby league on the weekend. So I had an opportunity for a career in rugby league. Um, my dad decided sort of back then there wasn't enough money in sport to have a career in sport. Uh, which was devastating for me. Um, and hence, yeah, the apprenticeship all came about and and it kicked off from there. So two years in the Chinese restaurant, Peppers on Sea at Terrigal Open, first five-star um, hotel property of its kind on the coast. And I was fortunate enough to secure a job there. A couple of weeks in banqueting, did a shift over in the French fine dining room. Uh, Marc Pion was the sous chef for that restaurant. Bruno Sedan was the executive sous chef. I did one shift there. They asked me if I wanted to stay, and I said, oh, I would be delighted. So I went from one day, you know, prawn toast, stuffed chicken wings, lemon chicken, to turning vegetables. So, yeah, it was quite remarkable in that respect. Would you consider them mentors to you? Yeah, look, Bruno was pretty fantastic for me. He was the executive sous chef of the hotel at Peppers, and he left to take on a position at the Windsor Hotel in Melbourne. Um, and I was fortunate enough for Bruno to offer me a position down there when I finished my apprenticeship, uh, which I did. I took that up. So I went down and worked at the Windsor Hotel in the Grand Fine Dining Room, which was a two-hatted restaurant, um, as soon as I qualified. And then from there, you progressed into hotels? Yeah, I stayed in hotels. What I found sort of back then in the you know late 80s, early 90s, as from a training perspective, you know, train the trainer and all the facilities and programs they ran, they were phenomenal um, to the point where I actually became the designated trainer of a five-star hotel here in Sydney. So I spent my time down in Melbourne. Then I moved on to the Fairmont Resort in the Blue Mountains um, before Lillianfels was built. So it was, the, it was the place to be up in the mountains at the time. And, and fortunately for me, some of the team members that I actually worked at with the Peppers had moved on to Hayman Island in the Whip Sundays. Um, and I got a phone call from Hayman Island to to go up there and work with the team. Um, I was fortunate enough to work for Scottish sous chef, um, funny enough, in a French fine dining restaurant, and he offered me um, the opportunity to work up there. Hayman at that time was the third best resort in the world, and I thought, wow, this is fantastic, you know, like I get this on my CV, then I can head to Asia, and that was the big plan. And did that happen? Did you head to Asia? 
No, unfortunately, I met my future wife on Hayman Island and we <laughs> headed back to Sydney because Sydney is where she grew up. Although I sort of grew up an hour's north or an hour, 20 minutes north of Sydney, I had no inkling to come to Sydney. And then, yeah, sort of yeah, in the early 90s, um, we came back to Sydney and I started working back then at the A&A Hotel as a, um, as a junior sous chef at the Brasserie Kitchen. When I moved here from the States, the ANA was um, one of the first uh, places I went to. And uh, what was the bar called at the top? It was called Horizon or something? Was it Horizon? Uh, Horizon's Bar. That's right. We used to have Unkai up there as well. So Sean President was there. He was doing his apprenticeship there as I was sort of in a junior Sue's role. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we go back sort of way back into the, gosh, the early 90s as to, you know, he, he, um, Sean doing his training up in Unkai. So from the ANA Hotel, what, what came next? Yeah, look, I'd been at the ANA for just over two years and the Brasserie was a fairly big kitchen. So we did three buffets a day. We did all room service as well. Um, quite a large hotel and, you know, I had quite a few bit of experience and I sort of wanted to step into my own sous chef role. You know, I'd sort of had a lot of guidance along the way and I was ready to take on my own opportunity. And an opportunity came up at um, the Hyatt Regency at King's Cross. Um, Daniel Booker was the executive chef there. He was also my sous chef on Hayman Island. So when we were on Hayman, we had a Polynesian restaurant uh, that Daniel ran. And then the, the hotel took a change and changed the Polynesian restaurant to an Australian themed restaurant. So crocodile, kangaroo, when it was all the rage um, back then and what see. So Daniel took over running um, the Hyatt. He was running um, a kitchen called Zoo Bistro. Um, unfortunately, Daniel was struggling with the day-to-day operation of the hotel and trying to run um, Zoo Bistro, and the opportunity came up to come in and run it. And the day that I arrived and stepped in, they had um, a review in the financial review, and they got you know they were pretty well panned in it with a score of six out of twenty. So my job was to was to turn that operation around and had full support of management, which was fantastic. Um, We had a fairly solid team there of, I think it was about 12 to 14 chefs. Unfortunately, within six weeks, they all came and went. Um, And then we sort of groomed a team from the ground up. And by the end of the year, we'd won Best Hotel Dining Restaurant in Australia in a Travelling Life magazine. We won the world's longest buffet at Darling Harbour. And I also managed to be picked up by um, a food writer and chef called Carol Silveraja that used to dine there frequently uh, with the Lindy Milans and the Peter Howards of the world um, quite frequently. She loved my food style and she was kind enough to invite me to the James Beard Foundation in New York uh, Village to a Nonya style degustation dinner with Australian produce. So, yeah, we just went gangbusters in that facility under the, yeah, the Hyatt, Hyatt brand. Incredible accolade. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, like mm. I, I went over to the James Beard Foundation at the, the ripe old age of 26. So, yeah, it was quite, um, it was a very, very up there career moment for me. Now, it would have been only 26 years old. If you had some advice right now to give your younger self, what would it be when you think back at 26 heading to New York for the James Beard Foundation? Yeah, look, it was all it was all surreal to be honest with you, um, Tonya. Um, and I think what I value the most out of it, and I, I think what sort of really stuck with me throughout my career, is that you know someone like Carol was not just a great mentor, but she took the time out to work with me. She took me under my wing. She nurtured me, and she offered me opportunity. Like, yeah, you know, for that I'll be forever grateful for. Um, 
you know, and to be, I guess, recognized and, you know, to work with somebody like that that was, you know, quite humble in sort of, you know, showcasing what, you know, I can do to me just really put me in great stead for my career and more importantly for future development of chefs that I've had in my team and, you know, what I can provide those chefs with in in regards to opportunity and, and the abilities that they sort of bring to the table. Well, you do an awful lot of mentoring now, don't you? Yeah, look, I, yeah, I do. I've, you know, over the years, you know, women in hospitality, I've been part of that program. You know, I've got apprentice chefs that I, I work with on the side. Even professional people I work with very closely in regards to sort of where their business is at, you know, whether that's personal or business. And, you know, the thing that I do enjoy is, uh, you know, with experience comes knowledge. So it's always good to have somebody that's got your best interests at heart to sort of bounce off. So from there at 26 years old and coming back to Sydney, what was the next progression? What was the natural step? Yeah, um, look, things were going fabulous at the Hyatt Hotel um, for me. And up at... um, up at the King's Cross there, Hyatt had the management rights to the building. They didn't actually own the building. A company called Millennium Cockform owned the building. So once their management contract sort of was coming to its end, Millennium Cockform wanted to take over the building. Um, I was dealing with Millennium Cockform as a hotel group, um, quite large globally, and they loved the Zoo Bistro concept and wanted to run it throughout all their properties throughout the world. I'm like, and I'm sitting here with the CEO of Millennium thinking, wow, I'm 26 years of age. This is going to be absolutely phenomenal. And then I met the director of HR and the director of F&B, and it was all on track. And within a handful of weeks, one by one, they all left the business. And I'm like, oh, wow, that's not painting a great picture. And to be fair to Hyatt, had I'd moved on back then as a department head, you couldn't work for that property or their properties for two years and I thought, oh, wow, you know, hotel, you know, clients looked after me so well, don't really want to jeopardise that relationship. And now that some of the key stakeholders have moved on from Millennium Copthorne, didn't really leave a good feel for me. So I moved on out of the Hyatt and then I started working with off-site catering companies. I went to a company early on called Blue Rock Catering, which was based out of Neutral Bay. Very small in the early stages and it just – it it just grew overnight like unbelievable to the point over Christmas we had to rent two other kitchens we had multiple events on hiring trucks staff people waste services and the list goes on and to pull off some of those events yeah it was it was seriously monumental and you know to do sit down dinners oh gosh back then you know, center point tower for a thousand people and two thousand people and events and I've never done it <laughs> 5,000 or 10,000 people and it was just it was huge it was a massive learning curve managed it all and you know that put me in good stead for big numbers big volumes off-site I didn't have a single full-time person in the team it was all casual based or agency based so to sit there and think that you know with an operations manager you can pull up such events of that magnitude yeah it was really something else. Now were you an equity holder of that business? Oh, gosh, I wish I was. (laughs) I really do wish I was. When I see some of the numbers and doing events for the Garvin Institute and what have you, it was just, yeah, it was just, they were full on, they were big days, you know, like back then I'm talking 18, 19, 20-hour days. They were, it was seriously full on and it was back to back, you know, so it grew, it grew chronically and, um, 
you know, and for me to sort of have that opportunity was was amazing. And then I, I stepped out of that because um, my wife at the time, Fiona, that I met on Hayman, we came back to Sydney. She was working for Regent Four Seasons with Serge Dazaro and their marketing manager. Um, her husband had a business over in Willoughby. Um, he owned a, a place called the Sushi Counter, a Japanese restaurant. Then he had one to open like an American New Orleans bar cafe. So um, we went in as sort of not partners, but with some equity in the business to become partners with Profit Share. Um, yeah, and unfortunately, the goalposts sort of moved from from here to there, and and we moved on. As we moved on, what was fortunate at the time was that Serge then moved out of the region and partnered with um, Victoria Alexandra at Bathers Pavilion. So I said to Fiona, I said, "Well, why don't you put your CV in down there? It's been rebuilt." Um, she was fortunate enough to get the cafes manager's role down there before it was built. So they were working on Victoria's house, um, but I moved on from there into. Um, private clubs so i started working in the city at a place called the sydney club which was opposite the um west Inn hotel so they had the old members upstairs but i had a funky vibe three-level restaurant downstairs so i had the best of both worlds um you know fiona started there and unfortunately they overcapitalized on a loan they took out to refurb the building and then the the university and schools club bought their debt and then what I did is I put in a um, food and beverage plan for the university and schools club so I could sort of transition out of the Sydney club and move over there. But what happened back then, that was sort of in the late 90s, 99, year of 99, 2000. Um, that year, Fiona was diagnosed with breast cancer. So what it allowed me to do was to take a Monday to Friday job because of chemotherapy um, that she was undertaking and the radiotherapy really knocked her about. So we'd, we'd go to the hospital on a Friday afternoon, she'd have a chemotherapy, have the weekend to recover, then she'd go back to work. So for a period in my career, I, I sort of had to take a role, still an executive chef role, uh, but hours that were a little bit more sort of friendly to the needs of family. You know, and Fiona sort of, she, she was good for a couple of years, for about three or four years, she was clear, fourth year, and cancer came back in the lungs and liver. Um, and unfortunately, two years later, the um, liver cancer was her um, her demise, unfortunately. But by the time that she passed on, I'd actually taken on a role at Tripper's White Group. So I went in there in, I think it was 2004, with Brian Trippis and Michelle. Um, they had five properties at the time. I stayed with that business and that organisation for 10 years. And I was fortunate to be a part of their growth from, and there was about five properties to upwards of 40. Um, so I was involved in all food concepts, rollouts, implementation, mobilizations uh, across the country. So, you know, from, from cafes to restaurants to offsite events to private schools, you know, to the point of working with nutritionists at the Institute of Sport in Canberra. Uh, we worked with Peter Morgan Jones at Hammond Care in a palliative care unit with texture modified food. Um, so that experience for me over that period was just, it was remarkable. It was, it was seriously unbelievable and, and something I never thought I'd do. Here I am is, you know, a little 15 year old starting off in a Chinese restaurant, <laughs> now working with texture modified food and, you know, aged care and nutritionalists down at the Institute of Sport, like doing certain meals for athletes on the world stage and, 
so yeah, it's been quite amazing to be honest. That's where our paths crossed um, when you were with Trip is White, and you would send some of your chefs on our on our tours when we were just starting out to learn about providence and ingredients and professional development. Yeah, exactly right, Tony, and, that, and that's something that's really close to my heart and always has been. Like, yeah, you know, in the kitchen environment, even today, we talk about you know loyalty. How do we ret- retain staff? Yeah, and the thing is, you know, it's that education piece between the farmer, the grower, the producer, and connecting with the chef to understand what it is they're putting on the plate, and more importantly, how it gets from the farm to the plate, so they can appreciate the actual process. So when they're dealing with their own teams, they're quite knowledgeable and on the forefront of seasonality, produce, you know, things change. We rely on Mother Nature. It's not as, you know, I I think we've become accustomed to it's always on tap Mm. 24-7. And that's not necessarily the way that the farmer sees it. And, yeah, I find those two as quite valuable um, and insightful for any members of the Kitchen Brigade to, to bring them closer to the fabric of what they're using. Mm, here, here. We think so too. And, and that's, um, you know, it's a wonderful thing and it's an issue that's becoming more and more front of mind, which is brilliant because, I mean, you've been living, eating and breathing it for a long time and so have we. So it's, it's nice that it is front of mind on menus and at venues, you know, sending their teams out and actually understanding that supply chain. Yeah, definitely. We're talking about Trip is White. How many chefs did you have under your um, portfolio? Oh, golly gosh. I'd say probably at Trip is White, we would have had two or 300 at least. So when you made the decision to do something different with your career, how did you go about that? Because I must say in the industry, it was it was quite a shock. I mean, you were quite embedded in Trip is White. So how did that come to be? Yeah, look, I guess, you know, sort of after 10 years and watching that growth across different markets and segments in hospitality, I, I just got to a point where it was a bit like, oh, it's a little bit the same. You know, it's another mobilisation, it's another menu rollout. We had a lot of systems in place. Um, I probably took it for granted that we had all those systems in place. You don't realise what you've got until you go somewhere else and they don't have it. So I moved on to a company called the Sydney Collective Group, which was um, Fraser Short. So they had um, obviously the Morrison in Sydney with Sean Connolly, the Watson's Bay Hotel, Northies, um, Monavale Hotel, and they also bought the Balcony um, in Byron and the Erskineville Hotel. So I worked with Sean Connolly for a while um, across that portfolio, opened Sean's restaurant at the Balcony um, with his brand and obviously his food. And so, yeah, look, obviously um, there was things that Fraser want to put in place from a consistency point of view and back of house. So systematically we had to put a lot of things into play, uh, which took a lot of work, you know, food safety plans and what have you. But, yeah, as I said, I think I was a bit spoiled over the time at Trippus White that we had all that in place um, and then to sort of re- rebuild it again from the ground up it, it gives you a different appreciation of when when you do have it, just, just how good and seamless um, it really is. And how important it is. Yeah, without a doubt. And obviously you've got to bring the chefs along for the journey as well because that change management piece um, is always a challenge and the adoption rate and pickup rate varies from business to business. But, you know, at, at the end of the day, I, I valued and respected um, the key players in our team and teams 
um, you know, they always contributed to the success of the operations and, and the fabric of what we're trying to achieve. And the most important thing for me was that everybody had a voice at the table. So, yeah, you know, we can all identify problems every day, whether it's personal or professional. But, you know, my mandate with most of the head chefs were, look, I understand we're going to have problems, we're going to have complications, but don't bring them to a meeting, bring the solutions with you. Because mm. I'd rather work with the solutions rather than a problematic team that can just identify the challenges. So after Sydney Collective, what then? Yeah, after Sydney Collective, um, I had the opportunity to go into consultant, uh, consulting, sort of venture out on my own. I thought, oh, I'll give it a, you know, I wanted to give something a go for myself. I was fortunate enough to land a role with the, um, the Pan Pacific Group. So I was overseeing um, the two portfolios here in Sydney. Um, and that went so well that they bought the property down in Melbourne and uh, the Hilton Hotel, and they rebranded to a Pan Pacific Hotel five-star property. So I was involved with the changeover and the rebranding of that hotel, which which was fantastic opportunity. After sort of twelve months or so, um, I was approached by another business, which was Crenides at the time, to to go in and oversee their portfolio, which was quite attractive in regards to their growth strategy. Um, they were looking at rolling out another six to seven operations in the next twelve months. Uh, for me, that was quite progressive, quite exciting. So jumped over there for a little bit. Unfortunately, that probably didn't go the way that it could have or should have. And then I thought, you know, I need a break from all this. You know, it took a lot of exhaustive hours. Um, and then I took a role with Select Fresh Providors um, and then stepped into the world of fruit and vegetables for two years. What a contrast, because now you're going in the back door of the kitchens, you're mm. delivering to chefs, mm. and you're actually, you've kind of flipped, you're on the other side. Yeah, 100%. And look, to be honest with you, Tony, you're like, as a chef, and I guess there's a, a sense of ignorance and arrogance about it all, but you just expect your mushrooms and your zucchinis and your cauliflowers to rock up perfectly every day of the week. But once you actually spend some time with the farmers and the growers and understand the conditions that they're subjected to, and I'm not talking about working, I'm talking about growing conditions, it gives you a whole different appreciation. There was there was one day I was out there at markets with a grower. Um, he had a whole crop of cauliflowers to pick. The night before the pick, there was a frost. It damaged his crop. It had to be downgraded from an A-grade product to a, another grade. Um, and that cost him God knows how much. And when you sort of hear stories like that and the time it takes to get that product to where it needs to, yeah, it's, it's heartbreaking. And, you know, we, we want everything to be perfect without sort of understanding you know, the blood, sweat and tears that really goes into bringing a product to the back door of a restaurant. So, you know, I was introduced to Urban Greens with Noah, you know, sort of urban farmer indoors um, when he was sort of over there around the Alexandria area. And, you know, it was great to see his business flourish and, you know, forage gourmet edibles up the road with Jamie. You know, he's expanded his farm and, you know, to get in and understand the, the day-to-day rigour of their business, yeah, that's stuff like that's priceless. So you mentioned Noah from Urban Greens. He's not just doing it indoors. He's doing it. He's growing his um, microgreens underground in the car park. Yeah, that, yeah, exactly That's right. extraordinary, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah he's, he's growing. He's, I believe he's over at Barangaroo now beneath Macquarie Bank, and I've seen yeah. his facility, and yeah, it's just remarkable. Once again, a chef in the trade that knows his oh. stuff. And yeah, he's going gangbusters, which is fabulous. From there, what was your next progression? 
Well, yeah, well, two years in fruit and veg, I was missing the creative space. I, I miss sort of, you know, being involved in food, creating dishes, and you know, I had this urge to get back into the kitchen, and I started um, an opportunity came up for um, Alice Seal Lebanese Restaurant Group across their portfolio, and they were opening restaurants. But, the, you know, the, the, the challenge with that was I started on the day that COVID actually fully kicked in and restaurants were closed and I'm like oh gosh like could be the shortest career step of my life right here but fortunately they had a retail brand called Mazzati um so that was you know going to all the uh, Lebanese supermarkets you know packaged product and and what have you and on the cusp of COVID we created and developed another 50 or 60 SKUs created a home delivery service so we could help pivot off that for a little bit so I worked with them for a good few months and then stepped away from that. And I joined a company called Good Drop Oils, which was a newly formed business under the Riverina Oils banner. Two years in development to create um, a cooking oil for food service. Um, so grown and sourced locally in the Riverina, um, crushed seven kilometres away, superior cooking oil and seeing its qualities, its attributes, the value for money it brings to business, the quality of food that came out of it, the sustainability footprint, it really resonated with me. And I saw an opportunity in the education space. It's it's a it's a segment in the hospitality that there's not much education behind. And I've you know I sort of felt with my network and my contacts, you know, masterclasses at the Cordon Bleu School and in general to educate people on what to look for in oil, how to get value out of your oil was was quite appealing for me. And I stayed with Good Drop for just over a year and a half. And then I was approached by Spizify, which is a digital food safety company, um, which digitizes everybody's compliance. You touched on, well, you're talking about education and talking about your network. So with social media, has that grown your social media? Because I know you're very active on LinkedIn. And if any of our listeners are um, interested, you can find John on all the social channels, but in particular LinkedIn, and we'll have your details in the show notes as well. But do you find that platform to be a very useful tool? Yeah, it is. And I think I think what's really important with LinkedIn, it's you know, it's it's all about the sh- uh, subject matter that resonates with people, um, and I, and I've sort of found over the years that I've I've had a lot of traction in that space. You know, when I put a post up, it where it goes and the feedback and the comments, yeah, it's 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 incredible. So yeah, even even the story behind um, Good Drop Oils, um, and even with the company I'm working with at Squizify. Yeah, it's quite interesting. Once people are aware of what you're standing behind, um, there's actually great value um, in sharing that across social platforms. Well, I think we need to hit on having won the Seafood World title. Yeah, look, it was it was really remarkable how it all came about. It was it was on the back end of COVID. Um, I saw something through socials. Um, it was the World Food Championships here in Australia, and I thought, oh, you know, and you had to submit a dish. You need the story behind the dish. And I thought, oh, well, why not? You know, I did um, a few years ago. Um, I was invited by Adam Moore and Karen Doyle uh, to do a brain cancer charity event called Aaron's Wish. Um, so I created um, a menu for that particular event, and, you know, one of those dishes was the ravioli dish. And I thought, oh, I'd submit that as my entry. Um, and the story behind that. And, yeah, little did I know 
couple of weeks later and a couple of months later that I'd made the top 10 based on that dish. And then we had virtual cook-offs and then there was live cook-offs at the Dome at um, Olympic Park at Homebush. So I went from top 10 to top five to top three to winning the championship here, which then gained me a golden ticket to head over to Dallas, Texas to compete over there, which was amazing. And social media helped you in terms of connecting with providors in the States, didn't it? Yeah, to your point, um, Tonya, like LinkedIn, it, it, it's been a phenomenal tool for me. Keith Denard Jones over um, over overseas, he um, he seen that I was going over. He offered me support. In fact, he actually had a stand that he was featuring at the World Food Championships, and he put me in contact with another chef that was local. This chef supplied me with mixers, mixing bowls, equipment, ice packs. He drove me around town to get my last ingredients. And to, to be honest with you, without their help, I probably wouldn't have been able to achieve what I did achieve. Well, congratulations. I mean, what you have achieved is awesome. It's very exciting for Australia. And um, you've got such a strong community here in this country, but also a growing one overseas. And everyone is behind you and supporting you along this journey. Yeah, look, thanks, Tony. It's been amazing, like, especially locally. Like, I had um, a few companies behind me with sponsorship to help my travels and journeys overseas, uh, which lightened the burden because it, it was quite an undertaking coming from here, going over there. I go back again in May to compete um, against the other nine category winners for the overall World Food Championship title, and that's held in Bentonville, Arkansas. So we're just dealing with um, the committee and the CEO of the World Food Championships at the moment with fortnightly meetings uh, leading up to that next next major event. So you mentioned some of the sponsors or the companies that have helped you. Do you want to share who they are? Yeah, absolutely. Well, first and foremost, my own company, Squizify. Um, Daniel, the CEO, has supported my journey and, and the time that I need um, to attend to these events. Yeah, Brad Bennett, Le, um, Culinaire Hospitality Institute, he supported my journey. Moa Interfood Australia has also been a massive supporter of mine um, in regards to produce, practicing the dishes at home. We had ATF also um, contribute towards some sponsorship there, um, Supply, which is an online ordering platform, Technical Chef of Australia also. Um, so, yeah, I had um, multiple teams in Unox were fabulous. Um, good old Wayne Biles there. You know, I got decked out with caps and backpacks. And did you have the coffee mug? Yeah, yeah, I've, I've <laughs> got it all. I've got it all. So yeah, and it's it's really assisted me in my journey and shared those experiences with all those companies. So you know, the exposures come back sort of tenfold for everybody. So you know, w- without their support, it, it certainly would have been a lot harder to, to achieve. I mean, that's what this industry is. It is a big community. And um, to inspire others by pushing the boundaries and also challenging yourself. I mean, you have to tell me it's quite vulnerable. You putting your, your dishes up and competing overseas and not knowing the lay of the land. You can't tell me that, yeah, you just took that in your stride. You had to be like... Paddling under the water, I would imagine. Oh, yeah. Look, look at the end of the day, Tony, you're, you're up. Look, I haven't competed in all fairness for 30 years. You know, in, mm. in my younger days, I used to go in salon culinaires and live restaurant cook-offs and a whole lot. Um, as you know, I'm the national chairman of judges for Chef of the Year. And, yeah, look, it was important to me that, and 
that I can still benchmark myself against the world. To sort of come away with that title is is quite humbling. The competition over there goes all year. There's over 80,000 entries to get down into the finale. So to be a part of that is is quite a credit in itself. But to come home with a world title, uh, representing Australia is it's simply first class. And I still find it hard to believe that I have that title. And to think I was cooking against teams of three and I was doing it solo, it, it just adds a little bit of more bit more cream to, to the coffee, as they say. And, you know, I feel I was, I was pretty well planned for the event. I practiced the dishes. I timed the dishes. I had my workflow. I had my lesson plan. I, I wasn't racing the clock, but each stage of my cook-off, I was where I need to be on that clock in regards to time. So timing and execution was where it needs to be. Um, I felt quite happy when I put those dishes up, but obviously ecstatic that I came away with with the award. Well, you had us all cheering you on. You mentioned Chef of the Year and um, being chair of judges for that, and I've had the luxury of emceeing a few of them. And having that status for yourself, giving other chefs that are entering competitions, is that something that you would say just – you know, get involved at any stage of your career, whether you've been chefing for 30 years or a second year apprentice? Yeah, absolutely, Tony. I, I think it's really uh, it's really important for chefs to get involved in such competitions to sort of see what's out there, what people can do in the time frame. And I think it's really good to sort of benchmark where you're at personally and professionally. It's a great learning curve. Yep, there's nerves involved. Of course it is, but that comes with confidence and time and practice and all those things. Um, It's really great to see that other industry colleagues and professionals volunteer their time to be on the judging panel, sort of nurturing our next level of talent. The camaraderie that's shared in the kitchen, the knowledge and the experience um, is first class. And, you know, I get the the great job of help selecting the panel that helps select the chef of the year. So it's really good to have that recognition in industry and and be part of that process. Well, John, thank you. Thank you so much. Look forward to seeing you down in um, Melbourne, Chef of the Year, in the the kitchen arena there at the end of April. Me too, Tony. Can't wait. Exciting. The entries are rolling in thick and fast. All right. So the listeners out there, if there's any chefs, put in your applications. What do they need to do? They just hop online to the food service show? Yeah, go to food service, go to Chef of the Year, download the registration form and submit it. Brilliant. All right. Thanks, John. Lovely. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Well, thank you so much for tuning in with us today. We really hope you enjoyed listening as much as we've enjoyed the conversation. You'll find links to anything mentioned in today's chat in the show notes. We have some more extraordinary guests lined up and we would love you to join us again. So please make sure you're following us on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss future episodes. We'd also love to hear any of your feedback, good or bad, or perhaps you've got a guest you'd love to hear from. You can let us know. And the best way to stay up to date with what we're doing, who we're talking to and where you'll find us around the country is to become part of the Straight to the Source community at straighttothesource.com.au forward slash community. Until next time.